So think about these scenarios for a moment. A student at school faces rejection by her peers every day and is overcome with thoughts of self-hatred and depression and even starts to entertain thoughts of taking her own life as a way out. A single mom is buried under a load of responsibilities and finds herself sinking deeper and deeper into a pit of despair that she doesn't think she can get out of. A married couple, married for decades, grows disheartened after taking hit after hit after hit, feel like they're being piled on. Kids stuff, work stuff, things breaking around the house, and now they find themselves taking their frustrations out on each other. Think about a once active Christian who used to enjoy serving God and others on the front lines of ministry, but now they sit silently on their hands and vow to stay uninvolved because they've been burnt one too many times. Think about this. After a long stretch of spiritual impact, a once vibrant church loses its focus on Jesus Christ, starts to turn inward with members getting suspicious of one another and griping about leadership, and the stream of life-giving power that once flowed freely now seems to be drying up. When you think about situations like that, are they just the product of normal human processes and behaviors? Or could it be that there's something darker going on, something more sinister going on behind the scenes? Well, we're into our third week of this series that we're calling Epic, and and as you know, we're exploring the grand story of the kingdom of God, right? We've been learning about our great king, Jesus Christ, and his desire to establish his kingdom on the earth, his rule and reign in the hearts and lives of people like you and me. And uh, we've seen that the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, living under God's gracious rule. And last weekend, I shared with you that that message of the kingdom, Jesus called it the gospel, the good news. And so we looked at it from two vantage points, right? From high up in the air and then from down on the ground. And uh, we saw all of that. Today, though, I want us to kind of look at things a little bit differently. I want us to understand one of the primary forces at work in our world that is hindering the rule and reign of King Jesus. Not only, you know, around the globe, on our earth as a whole, but in our city, in our church, perhaps in your family, in your marriage, and in your own life. You see, the Bible tells us plainly that there is another kingdom in operation in our world, a rival kingdom to the kingdom of God, and Jesus apparently believed in this. Listen to this passage from Matthew. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, Jesus, and he healed him. That's pretty cool, huh? Jesus can do that. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed, and they said, can this be the son of David, the promised Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now think about this. How many kingdoms are referenced here? Two kingdoms, right? 
Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, and he also talked about the kingdom of Satan. And several things are going on here. First, we see Jesus exercising his kingly authority by healing a man's disease, apparently by casting a demon out of him. And the people who saw that were amazed by it, and they openly wondered, could this man be the promised descendant of David who is to come, who's going to come and rule and reign in Israel? But the religious leaders got wind of the incident and evidently felt threatened, as they often did, by the notoriety that Jesus was gaining from episodes like this. And so they challenged Jesus by making the very bright assertion that Jesus must be casting out demons by the power of Satan. That's good thinking, right? Jesus responds by declaring that Satan does indeed preside over a kingdom but that he would be shooting himself in the foot if he was empowering anybody to cast demons out of people. No ruler in his right mind would intentionally send his troops out to fight each other. No head of state would send his army out to fight his own navy. That's ridiculous, and so the Pharisees' accusation is very foolish. By the way, envy will do that to you. It'll make you say stupid stuff. But this little exchange shows us something very important. Just as King Jesus is out to build and extend his kingdom's rule, and he is, so Satan, the prince of this world, seeks to establish a rival kingdom and extend his reign further into the lives of people. And so we need to know this. We who are members of Jesus' royal family need to understand how this rival kingdom operates. Now, I really don't like giving the evil one much airtime. That's why we only do messages like this every several years, really. For me, the knowledge of Satan's kingdom is kind of like an open window running in the background on my computer. It's there, it's open, it's running, I know it's there, but it's not my focus. My focus is on King Jesus, his kingdom, what he has done, what he is doing to build his kingdom. That's where my focus is, but from time to time, that program running in the background forces its way front and center on my screen and I have to address it. Maybe that's happened in your life. In case you doubt that the Bible teaches the presence of evil spiritual forces in the world, let me, let me string together some scriptures, okay? About a dozen scriptures from different places in the Bible. Just, just listen to what God's word says. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. He has delivered us, this is God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. 
And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Do not give the devil a foothold. The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one, for greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I believe in the operation and activity of spiritual, dark spiritual forces in our world, primarily because the Bible teaches it, but secondarily because I've experienced it. And many of you have as well. A man named Alan Redpath once observed this. He said, whenever God opens the windows of heaven to bless us, Satan always opens the gates of hell to blast us. So you see, there may be more going on in your life and in your situation than first meets the eye. There may be other things going on behind the scenes. I want us to expose this rival kingdom today. First, let's note a few things and be reminded of a few things about our enemy. Again, we don't talk about this every weekend or even every month, but we need to be aware. We don't have to fear the evil one, thank God, but it's foolish to underestimate him. In the Bible, we're given several titles of our enemy. This is on your study outline if you haven't pulled that out yet. His titles that he's given in Scripture reveal his power, his authority. He's called the Prince of Demons, the God of this age, the Prince of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. I like to call him the pretender prince because he's not the real deal. His, na his names in Scripture also tell us about his activities. Forty-nine times he's called Satan. And that means adversary, opponent, enemy. Do you know that you have, if you're in Christ today, you have an enemy. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not your boss. It's not that guy that you don't want to win the election that's coming up. Your enemy... Your adversary is unseen. It's the evil one. The word devil is used 34 times in the Bible. It means accuser. And once he's referred to as Apollyon, which means destroyer. Jesus' description tells us what his intentions are. He says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So this is not someone you want to consort with. This is not a good guy. This is someone you want to keep your distance from. The Bible tells us many things about Satan that we would not know otherwise were it not for the revealed word of God. It tells us that he was once the highest ranking angel in heaven, very likely a worship leader, Lucifer in heaven. But that because his heart was filled with pride, he led a revolt, he led a rebellion against God. He was jealous of God's honor and glory and wanted it for himself. And so he was banished from heaven because of his pride. He rules the kingdom of darkness now. He opposes God and his kingdom and he fights to maintain his hold on the world and he holds sway over unbelievers, whether they realize it or not. So the devil is real. I don't know if you believe in him. I do. A conscious being. He exists. He's alive. He's the roaring lion. He's the cunning and crafty one who masquerades as an angel of light. You know that picture of him with a pitchfork and horns and a tail? That came up during the, the medieval period. The Bible calls him an angel of light, attractive, appealing. He makes temptation look enticing. He accuses God's people day and night. He is Satan, Lucifer, the pretender, the evil one, the snake, that old serpent. He absolutely hates God and he despises Jesus Christ. And he is hell-bent on making Jesus look foolish by ruining your life 
so that you'll turn on, on your king. He's the chief opponent of the kingdom of God and the royal family. He despises the gospel and churches that proclaim it and Christians that proclaim the gospel. He is wicked, evil, diabolical. He takes people down and then he kicks them in the face when they're down. He's the devil and he is God's mortal enemy. And if you've submitted your life to the kingship of Jesus Christ, he's your mortal enemy also. If he feels you're a threat to him, if he feels you're a threat to his kingdom, you'll have a target on your back. If you don't learn to live in the reality of who you are in Christ, listen to me, if you don't learn to live in the reality of your position in Christ, who you are in Christ, if you don't train your hands for war, he can take you out in this life, not for eternity, but in this life. I've seen it many times. We do not have to experience that as God's people. We do not have to be taken out by Satan's schemes. We can stand our ground. We can fight back. We do need to know what his schemes are. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. By the end of this sermon, by the end of this sermon, some of you are going to have your eyes open to the fact that what you're going through in your life is spiritual attack. That's what's going on. You're going to go, oh, I'm not sure I saw it quite to this extent before. Hopefully you'll also see your powerful spiritual weapons and resources for combating it. The Bible says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the schemes of the enemy. It says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. Another translation says, we are not unaware of his schemes. So this morning, let's re-familiarize ourselves with the schemes of our adversary, our opponent, with a view towards understanding how he might be at work in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our community, and in our world. Let's look to God's word to expose them. First, the device of the devil, scheme of Satan, is intimidation. He's an intimidator. He's, in 1 Peter 5.8, he's likened to a creature, which is what? A lion. Be self-controlled and alert, it says. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Is there a more intimidating creature in all of nature than an angry lion who's roaring? You ever seen one at the zoo or on a YouTube video? Hopefully not in your backyard or anything like that. So intimidating. Satan, through his strategy of intimidation, seeks to melt away our courage, paralyze us with fear, make us feel insignificant and powerless, shut us down and silence us, and render us ineffective as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. He's an intimidator. Intimidator. That's what lions do. They roar. They roar a lot trying to intimidate God's people into backing down, shrinking back, shutting up. Anybody felt intimidated in recent days or weeks? Anyone? Could be there's someone behind that. Well, that's one of his most useful strategies. A second one is like it, and that's accusation. So intimidation and accusation. He is an accuser. Revelation 12, 10 says, calls him this, for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. So here's a second proven 
scheme, strategy, weapon that our enemy often pulls out of his arsenal, accusation. He is an accuser. He is good at it. He's been doing it for centuries. I believe he has the ability to plant thoughts in our minds. And many times they are accusing thoughts. I've encountered in my experience at least five kinds of accusations. See if you resonate with any of these. He will accuse you to God. That means he'll talk to God about you. That's what he's doing day and night, it says. It's what he did with Job. Remember the story of Job? Job was having the worst day of his life, the day from hell on the earth. But up in heaven, behind the curtain, there's this conversation going on between God and Satan. And basically, Satan looks at God and says, look, the only reason that Job serves you is because you've made his life so easy and pleasant. Let me get at him. Let me make his life uncomfortable. And you'll see, God, he'll turn on you so fast it'll make your head spin. That's what Satan does. He accuses us to God, trying to bring into question our loyalty, our allegiance, and our faithfulness to him. But he'll also accuse God to you. He'll talk to you about God. That's what he did with Eve in the garden, right? Eve, God's just holding out on you. He wants to restrict your happiness. That's why he's putting all these oppressive rules on you. God's just one big cosmic killjoy who wants to ruin your fun. I mean, that was his message, basically, to Eve. Satan loves to accuse God to us, trying to get us to question God's goodness, his character, his plans. He's an accuser. Not only that, Satan loves to accuse you to others. He does. The evil one loves to accuse God's people to each other. So he will plant accusing thoughts about you in the mind of your friends. And then what will they do? They'll post it on Facebook, right? So that everybody knows how they feel about you right now. Now, I'm going to go on a rant here for a moment. Is there ever a good and godly reason to spew about someone on Facebook? Is there? I can't can't think of one. But this happens every day. Someone getting spewed on, I'm not against Facebook, I use it, but it's like anything else, right? It's a tool. And some of you have used this tool of technology in a way that actually makes you a tool of the enemy by tearing someone else down on Facebook. And I'm your pastor looking you in the eye today and telling you it's demonic, it's wrong, it is sinful, and you need to repent if you're doing that. And after you repent, do this to kind of turn the tables. Go on to Facebook and and make this post. I am hereby unfriending the devil. I will no longer tear people down and dismantle their reputation on Facebook, but my posts will be restricted to that which uplifts and encourages other people. That would be an evidence of repentance, wouldn't it? Don't let yourself be a stooge, a pond, a friend of Satan. Realize who's behind all that. Satan's an accuser. And he will accuse others to you. Have you experienced this? Had thoughts like this? He doesn't like you. She thinks you're a jerk. They don't want to be around you. They despise you. He doesn't care about you one little bit. Occasionally, I'll hear people make comments like this. My church doesn't care about me. 
or you don't care about me. Where did that notion come from? You know, if I were Satan, that's what I'd be telling people. He'll also accuse you to yourself. You've experienced this. Satan accuses us to ourselves. You've heard that little voice inside your head saying, you're worthless. You're hopeless. You'll never amount to anything. You're a loser. You're a sorry excuse for a Christian. Don't even try. Your past is too sordid, too ugly. Jesus could not forgive you. He'll hold that against you forever. You know, some people have been living their lives in bondage for decades because they're believing things that were told to them back when they were young. And they're lies. That's the thing about all of this. There's, there's lies. He's the father of lies. He gives birth to lies. All of these accusations are based in lie. And we've got to be vigilant, don't we? We've got to be careful. Well, Satan loves to create discouragement and division through planting accusations. And speaking of division, that's a third of his preferred strategies. Division. Division. His motto? Divide and conquer. That's what he does. Dividing families, he's good at it. Husbands from wives and wives from husbands. Parents from children. Dividing. He loves to divide close friends. I heard a guy tell me once, my brother and I haven't spoken in four years. Well, there may be other things at work, but I know who's behind that kind of division. He's not averse at all to separating people from their small group or people from their church family. He's a divider. He loves to pit people against each other. Notice how James put it in James 3. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, what? Of the devil. Of the devil. He divides. How does he do it? Well, he does it by accusing us to each other, like we just talked about. He does it by enticing us to magnify the other person's faults and flaws and not their good points. He gets us to focus on the 5% that we disagree on with someone, totally ignoring the 95% we agree on. You ever find yourself doing that? How come every time we get together, we're always arguing about this little sliver of, of life that we disagree on? When we can celebrate and rejoice in the 95% that we totally agree on. He gets us to do that. He does it by fueling unforgiveness. They hurt you. Don't ever forget that. They hurt you. Don't forgive them. Pick at the scab, reopening that wound. He does it by spreading lies and worse than that, half-truths. By inciting bitterness, promoting isolation. That's that lion thing again, right? If he can isolate you from the pack, you're easy pickings out there. Division, classic satanic strategy that works far too often. Another tactic aimed at diminishing the impact of the church is infiltration. Infiltration. I don't even want to talk about this one, so I won't. Number five, affliction. Affliction, torment, distress. This is what was going on with Job, right? Satan afflicted him. It says, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet 
to the top of his head. Read the story of Job sometime. He faced horrible trials and got confused, didn't he? But in the end, he held on to his faith in a God who was good. But the thing we often miss is it says that in that particular situation with Job, all of those afflictions came from who? From Satan. And we need to realize that sometimes the distress that comes into the lives of the people of God is the work of the evil one. Now, I don't think Satan can be blamed for every little hassle in your life, every little illness, every flat tire. But I do know that there are those times and occasions where he is allowed to break through and afflict the people of God. And it takes real discernment to know when that's the case. Like, where's this coming from? That's why we need to be in relationship with each other and be praying with and for one another so we can discern the source of some of these things that come into our lives. Satan can cause affliction that can trouble us, distract us, and even cause us to doubt God if we'll let it. And maybe that's where you're at today. I don't know. The sixth scheme or strategy, temptation. We're familiar with this one. Temptation. He is a tempter, isn't he? Paul wrote, I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. So he's not only called a tormentor, he's called a tempter. Oh yeah, he tempts people every day. Some of you have been tempted already today. Maybe you're tempted right now to close your ears or turn the channel and not listen to what God wants to say to you. Satan is a tempter. He tempts people to cross God's boundary lines, to indulge the flesh, to be unloving towards others, to value pleasure over God. He tempts us always, doesn't he, to elevate ourselves and demand our rights. He tempts us to always take the easy way, like he did through Peter to Jesus. Remember that incident? Where Jesus was talking about going to the cross, and Peter said, no, you don't need to go to the cross. And Jesus looked at him and said what? Get behind me, Satan. Always tempting to take the easy path. Temptation. Well, one of the most important things to remember about temptation is that within the temptation, there's always a lie concealed. Always a lie. No one will find out. No one will know. Just this once won't hurt. Just this once won't hurt. It'll be worth it. Everybody else is doing it. How about this one? You deserve this. You deserve it. You work hard. Your life is hard. You deserve this little momentary pleasure of self-indulgence. You've earned it. There won't be any consequences. All of those thoughts. What are all those things? They're all lies. That's what they share in common. They're not true. The truth is this. There's a hook inside that worm. A cold, hard, jagged hook. And if we bite, we'll be caught and ensnared and maybe even enslaved. Satan is a master at this. He knows what flavor of worm you prefer. (laughs) He's been watching you your whole life. He knows what to dangle in front of you. It'll captivate your attention, and you go, I think i got to have that. He's a master tempter. So that's why it says not to be ignorant of his devices. 
But notice we spoke about lies again, and that brings us to the last of his schemes that I'll mention this morning, and that's deception. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. Think about this. Jesus looked at a group of people one time, and he said this, recorded in John 8, 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Wow. How would you like to hear that from the lips of Jesus? Your dad's the devil. I think we could accurately say that all the strategies we've talked about this morning have this at their core, lies, deceptions, false messages. From the lie that Satan himself believed... When he was in heaven, I can be like God. You know, you lie long enough, you start to believe your own lies. To the lie he told Eve in the garden, you will not surely die. To the lie he's been telling you this week. He is a card-carrying, certified, bona fide deceiver. Lying is his native language. I think his cycle of deception works kind of like this. He'll suggest thoughts to your mind that are not true. He's trying to get you to believe a lie. If you embrace it, if you believe it, if you accept that lie, then it's an invitation to him to come into your life and build a stronghold there in your life, a base of operations from which to move outward to gain more ground. Then that leads to bondage, slavery. That's what happens when we believe lies. We forfeit our freedom in Christ. We start to get bound up, and that causes us to become blind we're not seeing the truth clearly anymore and that makes us more susceptible to believe more lies some people live their whole life in this cycle of deception and they're all bound up and in christ it's needless he knows if he can get us to swallow even one of his lies we're on a path that ultimately leads to bondage and blindness and he's got a whole toolbox full of time-tested deceptions that work Lies about God, lies about other people, lies about you, lies about marriage, lies about parenting. He's got handcrafted lies for women and handcrafted lies for men. He's got a whole arsenal full of patented deceptions that he's been using on people for years and years. And you know why he keeps using them? Because they work. Unless we are vigilant enough to see what's going on here. Satan has no qualms whatsoever about lying to us often, and he's not averse to using any and every instrument he can to speak false messages into our lives, including people. Yeah. So there they are, seven strategies, schemes of Satan. Intimidation, accusation, division, infiltration, temptation, affliction, and deception. In this Clash of the kingdoms, these are the weapons that the pretender prince wields against the people of God. Say, what's he trying to do? He's trying to distract us from God's mission. He's seeking to dishearten and defeat us and discourage us, destroy our witness, and draw our hearts away from our king. I wonder if you're feeling the attack of the evil one these days in your own life or in your family. I wonder. But listen, the sermon doesn't end there. 
as members of God's royal family, as citizens of God's kingdom, we have a choice. Yield ground to the evil one or stand firm. Give in or fight back. And in the time that I have that remains, I want to briefly try to encourage you in your battle today. Okay? Maybe you're saying, so what do I do? How do I fight? What are my weapons? How, how do I go about it? I feel this assault from the evil one. Well, here's the first thing you need to know. This is so good. Our king has already won the war. I mean, we're on the victor's side, okay? He's already won the war through a bloody cross, through an empty tomb. The outcome has been sealed and determined. We win in the end. We're on Team Jesus, and we win. You need to know that. As a result of that, we're not really fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Big difference. You might want to write that down. (laughs) That might be the one salient point I'm making to you today. We're not fighting for victory, not ultimate victory. That's been sealed. We're fighting from victory, from a position, a stance of being victorious in this battle. Our king has won for us. You've got to understand that. And so you hear that, maybe you say, so what do I do then? Just sit back in my lazy boy and take it easy? No, we find encouragement to fight, don't we, in the, in the New Testament? Fight the good fight. Take your stand. Contend with the evil one. We do fight. In the grand purposes of our king, the pretender prince has not been annihilated. He is still allowed to exist in this unfolding story He refuses to acknowledge his ultimate demise. He's deceived. Go figure. The deceiver is deceived. And so the battle rages and we often feel it, don't we? Here's something to remember. The weapons we fight with, 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. They're not AK-47s or M-15s. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Remember we talked about strongholds. We are not defenseless. Our king has given us powerful weapons with which to fight back. Man, there's a lot I could say here. I could spend hours talking about armoring up, like it says in Ephesians. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. If you're in a a season of assault, you need to learn how to put the armor of God on. We put together a little document, praying the armor of God, that you can walk through all of those things, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, your shoes laced up with the gospel, all of those things, the sword of the spirit. You might want to come up and get one of these. They're in these baskets that we have uh, on the stage there at the end. Praying the armor of God on in your life. Spiritual weapons. And I could talk about the spiritual weapon of fasting. Going without food for a season in order to pray. And say, God, may your kingdom come here, now, in my life, in my family. May your kingship be deepened and extended here. May the enemy's kingdom be coming apart at the seams, unraveling. May you do to them what they're trying to do to us, accusation, division, infiltration, all those things. Do that to them so that we can stand firm under your gracious rule, God. We could talk about fasting. How I would love to talk about worship warfare 
how the, the songs and the truth that comes out of our lips is actually powerful warfare. That when we praise Jesus Christ from a pure heart, demons scatter like cockroaches when the light comes on. Worship warfare. I could talk about claiming the blood of Jesus Christ over a, a situation or a person or a family matter. As it says in the word, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. That's a weapon too. Satan hates the shed blood of Jesus. I could talk about speaking your testimony out loud to demons who might be present as I've done dozens of times in the middle of the night when I've been terrorized by frightening dreams and I'll get up and turn the light on put some worship music on and then give my testimony to any who might be listening that I stand with Jesus Christ I stand against you I will never serve you I am devoted fully and completely to the Lord Jesus Christ I know where you take those who follow you my Savior is taking me to heaven when I die he forgave me and paid for my sins I will never serve you overcame him by the word of their testimony. How can you talk about fighting without talking about the sword of the Spirit, the word of God? The memorized, internalized, applied, spoken word of God that Jesus used when he was tempted, right? Away from me, Satan, for it is written. He knew the word. Do you know the word? feeding on God's word so that in that moment of temptation in the day of evil you got something to say wielding the sword swinging the sword it's an indispensable weapon if you want to emerge victorious in your battle but the one weapon I'm going to focus on is prayer spiritual weapon of prayer and more specifically warfare prayer Think about this, right after telling believers to armor up for their battle, here's Paul's instruction for how to fight. Ephesians 6, 18, you're all armored up. Now what do I do? Verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. How do I fight? You fight on your knees in prayer. That's a spiritual weapon. It's a powerful spiritual weapon. And I'm not talking about measly little prayers. I'm talking about big, bold, faith-filled prayers. We need to understand that all the spiritual giants of ages past that we look up to and respect believe that prayer was a dynamic spiritual force, a weapon to be employed in spiritual conflict. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. He wrote this, The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. He fears nothing from prayerless study, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. <laughs> trembles when we pray. S.D. Gordon wrote this. Here's what prayer is. A man on the earth with his life in full touch with the victor and sheer out of touch with the pretender prince, insistently claiming that Satan shall yield before Jesus' victory step by step, life by life. You pray like that? I mean, that's prayer 795, right? Not prayer 101. Do we pray like that for each other? Insisting that Jesus' victory be enforced here and now in this situation with this person, this family? The place to start learning to pray this way is with scriptural prayers, word-filled prayers. Here's some examples that I pray when I'm in a season of intensity. Right from the word, deliver us from the evil one. 
right out of the Lord's Prayer. Oh God, deliver us, deliver me, deliver my family, deliver this church from the influence of the evil one. Free us from his influence. Bind the strong man. That's Matthew 12, 29. Bind the strong man. Tie him up, Jesus, so that you can spoil his household and take his goods. Crush Satan underneath our feet soon. That's in the Bible, Romans 16, 20. Crush him. Avenge us of our adversary, Luke 18, 3. Sometimes, in my season of spiritual intensity, I'll even talk, as I said earlier, to whatever dark forces might be around. Away from me, Satan, for it is written. I'll quote scripture. Jesus is the victor. You are defeated. I resist you in the name of Jesus Christ. Resist the devil, what does it say? And he will flee from you. You've got to learn how to resist him. So pray. Pray for yourself, yes. But pray for others. Did you know that there's some people who are too weak and immature to pray for themselves? They need other people to step in and stand in the gap and pray for them. These kinds of prayers. There's power waiting to be unleashed and of course, that implies letting other people know of your struggle and asking them to pray for you and with you. People can pray more intelligently if they know what's going on. The truth about spiritual warfare is this. It is often fought on our knees in prayer. In prayer. So who are you praying for? And who are you allowing to pray for you? And that's what we're going to do right now as a church family. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes?